We'd like to offer our deepest and sincerest thanks for your contribution to KBU's Give Guide campaign. Your support makes KBU possible. Thank you. Ah, free of complexity, controversy, and most importantly, hawk screeches. Support KBU, or music makes the movement. This is KBOO Portland. This is Carolina, or Carol, but Carolina works, and this is I See You. Stories of an immigrant making home on a gender-riffing block. Gentrifying. You're right, so I can't even tell. This looks like a six and seven. And yes, I am aware that I barely have an accent. But immigrants don't have to have one. Chapter 3, Soul of a Place. I did move around, you know, and I said my mother passed 10 years ago and, you know, she was living in that same house. And like I said, even though I went to the, got bust out, I went to the same school, to the same elementary school. You know, I never transferred high school, which brought me to really be such a communal person, you know, because I haven't moved around a lot, you know. But I'm very welcoming to those that want to be welcomed. Because <laughs> I have seen a lot of people around here that seem like they don't want to meet and talk. <laughs> so I don't, you know. That was Bobby, my dear next door neighbor. Our first house we bought with the intention of flipping it, and we spent seven years working on it um, to sell it and and then move. And so maybe I was lacking that sense of permanency in that house. That was my neighbor, Jackie. I didn't follow the neighborhood association, and I do now. So I think I am more curious about the neighborhood and where I live, but I don't know if that's because I'm older and this is our forever home. I had started asking my patient neighbors what it really meant to pay attention and belong to the place that we live. Thinking about curiosity and and place and sort of micro-locality, it reminds me of something I wanted to do in the Neighborhood Association years ago. Here's Alan Silver. He's the president of our neighborhood association. Something I found on Utney Reader was a um, how do you exp- you know how do you find the soul of your city on a neighborhood level? Like, what's your immediate surroundings? Where do people go? Where do they gather? Um, where do you, where in public do you find water? You know, where's your favorite place in the neighborhood? And, and a whole series of questions around this to uh, encourage people to think about neighborhoods and really physical you know grounded. Where do your feet take you? Where's your you know where, where do your eyes take you? And I think there's a humility in that, those kind of questions of sort of open ended questions. This idea really stuck with me. In Finding the Soul of the City, Elizabeth van der Skaff writes that people once believed places had souls that could be found in the guardian spirit whose personality summed up what was special about the place. A proper relationship to the guardian spirit was necessary for a person to dwell there responsibly. In return, the guardian spirit would nurture and protect them. Elizabeth says that this ancient relationship still holds. Places that are accorded the respect we have traditionally given to souls are better places as a result, because places that have been loved and taken care of can take care of those who live there. Since we no longer live in a culture that recognizes the soul of a place, especially an urban place, it's up to us to do the creative work of finding it ourselves. I'd extend this inquiry to being curious about how things are as they are. A major land grab is happening around the country, and Portland is no exception. To understand this picture, to stop and really look, is to also search for the soul of our place. The neighborhood is pretty nice because it's like not really a busy street, but it's not isolated or anything because you can walk. Here's walk. Emma. She lives on the corner. It's a pretty short block, I feel like. So the people who live here that know each other are pretty close. And there's a lot of like barbecues and 
the block parties are fun. This story is so big I had to give it a border. A city block is the smallest area that's surrounded by streets. In Spanish, it's cuadra. In Portuguese, it's cuarteirão. And we refer to the length of the street from one corner to the next. For many urban Latin American kids, the friends on the block are a world in itself. Children play across imaginary lines like race, class, or fences, and forge community in their wake. On our block, the kids run through yards in one continuous game. Okay. Uh, is that on? It is on. Okay. <laughs> okay, so this is a front yard, as I believe you already know. And we got a gravel path to our back porch. And then we also have our backyard, which needs mowing like every month. And I, I had no idea. We have a cat named Midnight. We don't have him. Yes, we do. He just visits us. Yes, he visits us. Yeah, but we don't own him. It's a neighborhood cat. The whole um left um side of our house, it's just completely stripped of the fence that we used to have. So we can just jump off if we need to. He's gonna jump up here. It's really easy. And it enters into our friend Bob's backyard. <laughs> and sometimes what we do for fun is we splatter mud on his armor statue. <laughs> But he never knows about it. And then leave in our Fred Joe's front steps. Except we usually take his driveway entrance. And it has a, and they're building a house next to it, I guess. Those were the siblings, Fisher and Alexandra. Can you describe how your house is part of the children's play on the block? Fisher is kind of a little gang leader here. And I found out our block was the second best yard in the neighborhood. The best one being Javier's after we moved out. Here's Bob from across the street. Ours was the second best because we had a longer distance. You could run around back here, stuff they could circle and come back. So you don't mind that they use your yard as a connecting kind of part of a circuit around the block? You know, it's just nice to see them out there being kids, you know, they're not in front of a screen or a telephone or whatever all day. They're actually out there. And there's usually there's always parents out here anyway. You know, if you're going to meet, we want to meet meet people next door, you know, let the kids go outside. The parents will be out there in a few minutes. How do you usually find your friends and how do you guys get a game going? Two ways. Let's see here. The mail slot. Oh. Or sometimes I like look around and say, anybody home? And then when I, the other way, I knock and say, and he, if he, there's nobody there, I just walk away. Sometimes I go to Fisher's house, then over Sebastian, our home, so that means I play with all of them. Um, I'm Danny, and I'm six years old, and I live. Where this house? On our block, children brought us together with a little help from a basketball hoop. Hi! I didn't know. It's so official with your microphone. Hi, I'm Jackie, and I live on Northeast 8th Street. The most interesting thing that I think started community on our block since I've been here is a basketball hoop. If you're three years old, you want to play it. And if you're 60 years old, you want to play it. You want to play it with your kids. If you're a parent, you want to play it with your friends. Even the teenagers come out and play it and you never see them because they're always on their phones. So I definitely think that 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 was the magic secret for our block, the special sauce, at least since I've been here. On our block, the children play on the street, much like I grew up playing, and it creates a culture of being outside that I didn't see much on other blocks. Or maybe we just had more children around. We got two of those little green guys that warn you to slow down because there's children at play. Some drivers looked visibly annoyed. One green guy even got stolen, so we just got another one. 
As the children played, the grown-ups would stand around, our conversations periodically interrupted by one of us yelling, Car! Car! I hear a little feet on the pavement. Yeah. It's tender, man. <laughs> I mean, I got a cousin. We got people. My people come from Mississippi. And my cousins, they, I don't even think they got shoes, man. They <laughs> do. <laughs> hey! Did you look both ways? Summer came around, and we all got water launchers for the kids. Oh, hey, close up like that. Time out. Time out, everybody. You're entering a war zone here. Watch out. All right, guys. Are we all here? Okay, what do we understand the rules to be? Fisher? Yeah! Are you listening? No headshots, right? We don't use, and we don't use the launchers as weapons. Hey, Fisher, describe to me what's going on. I'll go fill the bucket. So basically we're having a water gun fight! Although it's a bit unfair since our dad's using the hose! Car coming! Sage just like wants to steal one of those local access only signs. Seriously, send them out at night. See who steals one first. Watch out for the water gun war correspondent. Okay, car coming, car coming. What shapes our block shapes our city and our nation. As a microcosm, we're as representative as any small organism. We're both the building block and a reflection of the structure. How children move and interact points to the soul of a place. It tells us about what is livable in the spaces we share. But children's voices are not on the table in planning of cities or the voting that relates to their well-being. Their views are simply not considered on the same merits as those of adults. I've spent a few years writing a book for kids. It covers everything from ethics to consumer culture, civic engagement to evolution, but at the heart is a focus on this necessary paradigm shift in which children aren't just seen as subordinates. Here's a brief excerpt. It's not your choice to have been born. You didn't get to choose your parents. Even though most try to be good guides, grown-ups can be an embarrassment. Because you're not a super pet or an annoying little pest. You're not a little doll to dress or something we possess. You can be so forgiving and that's always very healing, but kids must be considered as complete human beings. You're flesh and blood and lots of heart and grown-ups with kids have no choice but to do their part, even when life is full of farts and tantrums, yells and kicks and barfs. You aren't here to make us happy or just blindly obey. We're all here to honor one another and figure out how to behave. All humans want love, it's interconnected. Life only makes sense when we're safe and respected. I love my block because um, I, I love it because I get to hang out with friends. I, I get to pick dandelions, which I love dandelions. <laughs> but the one thing I hate about the block is Everyone keeps littering. I do not like litter. I want to keep our world nice and healthy. That was Ivy. Here's Fisher again. Even if a kid doesn't want to get a shot, they either have to get it today, tomorrow, or in a few hours. I just got one yesterday. I was literally shrieking because they were holding me down while I got the shot. I was on the point of calling my doctor and my mom idiots. I just found a slug and clinging onto my fingers. I absolutely hate school. It's just boring. It's boring. I like fun things. When my children attended the neighborhood school, it was easy to see it as the radiating soul of our place. How all the children walk there and families linger in the hallways to catch up or look after each other's children in the playground. Jackie had imagined just that for her family. My perfect world vision, the kids would walk down the street together to school and ride their bikes back. And so I have been very surprised that most of the kids on the block that are close in age don't go to the neighborhood school. And it definitely was um, part of my Pollyannish vision of our new home was uh, the neighborhood school being as important to everyone else as it is to me. Many moving to the gentrifying inner city of Portland end up sending our children to other schools. School choice policies were instituted to help desegregate the schools, but ended up fueling gentrification and resegregation instead. By allowing parents to opt out of sending their children to the neighborhood schools, 
Like any other city, the story of our neighborhood school is a story of race inequality. Schools that have seen more integration of the white population also see more development in their schools, and schools that remain African American do not. I went to visit Professor Karen Gibson from Portland State. She explores racial economic inequality in the urban setting. There's still discrimination in the school system. Part of the reason Portland's uh, can gentrify is because of our school policies, which allow people to send their kids to other schools other than the local schools. So there's still discrimination going on. Idiot! Microphone! Bring it, my mom will, my mom will be mad. Dumb brain. Whippersnapper! I didn't hit it. Did you touch it? Yep. Did but you I, push buttons? No. Peace. Your school looks very special to me. But it's small and only have one of each grade. That's nice, though. Recesses are way more fun. At the new school? Yes. Do you yeah. like Do you like a bigger school? Like a lot of. No, people? I don't like bigger schools. Why not? Because they have more people and there's more bullies in them. Are there bullies in this school? Um, maybe. Mostly. You haven't met one yet. Well. A fourth grader named Tanner calls Elijah Little Pija. I have to add here that we no longer live on the block. The very decision to leave, the belief that we can go anywhere, it reflects the privilege of choice, of course. We knew we'd leave the city eventually, but it all happened sooner than expected. I had just spent the whole year recording our block, and the years before that making a home. We left the city and live in the country, and the children now go to a new and small public school. Despite having loved the neighborhood school experience, I'd been really ambivalent about the institution itself. The mediocre worksheets and large classroom sizes, the rushed line-up, sit-down, be-quiet rigidity of it all. Children hold the mirror to grown-ups, to cities and nations. Are we living our values? Is this a safe and inspiring place? Are most schools relevant? Are we thinking about what really matters? I believe the soul of our block was the children, how they braided the neighbors into a watchful, play-protecting community. When are you guys leaving for the, for your new house? We're leaving next week. Aww, why next week? Um, that's when the moving truck comes. Oh. That was Alexandra again. Here's Danny. He's Emma's brother. And it's sort of sad because I'm not going to play for you. Just if I moved it um, for you and the guys are living, I'll go play with you. Very sorry to hear you're leaving. Mm. Tell me how you feel about that. Um sad and excited. Can't wait to see your new house. But on the other hand, I'm sad that you're leaving your old house. Because we won't be able to see each other very often. That was Fisher. I checked in with my neighbor Jackie about six months after leaving our block. Hello? Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm just checking this recording app. One second. I think I'm recording. <laughs> Well, if it works for the FBI, it probably works for you. <laughs> no shit, I should just call him today. Yo, <laughs> what's your tricks? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think my connection to my neighborhood is a lot because of my identity as a parent. I knew that Portland Public Schools was fractured and underfunded. I mean, Sabin still doesn't have functioning water. We were somewhere the other day and Olivia asked, she said, well, do they have water that I can drink? <laughs> and I said, well, honey, everywhere has water that's drinkable where we live, except for your school. And I know that sounds strange because that's where all the children are. You know, here I am talking about the soul of a place and being somewhere and feeling committed to the place, but oops, we moved. Because <laughs> I felt self-conscious about it. I was asking all my neighbors to spend all this time with me. I felt a real sense of loss because I really liked 
what was going on on our block and I think you had a lot to do with it and I was a little yeah nervous like oh no they're moving what's gonna happen to our cool street but um the household that lives um in the place that you used to they um invited all the kids to and it was really fun for them to see the backyard get used by kids it's a strange feeling to have someone else inhabit a space you knew so well and it made me happy to hear jackie say that they opened up our old backyard and the kids could once again play on the rickety fort that our family had built Euphorbia wolfeni is a large plant that looks like it's from another planet. In early spring, when it's still dark and gloomy outside, it bursts neon green and self-seeds freely around Portland. I remember Euphorbia from that phase when a new place still feels alien. I handled my eerie new plant with bare hands before I learned the sticky sap is poisonous, especially for children. From the one euphorbia I had planted in front of the house, many had popped up in sidewalk cracks behind the shed under the fort. You gotta admire its resilience. I can't help but think of the parallel, how I've been trying to root somewhere for so long. Some varieties of euphorbia are invasive, which means a non-native species that grows aggressively, spreading and displacing other species. When we finally got to Portland over six years ago, I'd felt closer to finding home in this country. We'd been trying to settle out west, the new wave and a trend of settlement that almost eradicated thousands of years of human continuity on this land. Although we're not directly acting out the violence of manifest destiny, we're part of an aftershock nonetheless. It's a battle going on right now between those who cling to white supremacy and want to keep white supremacy and those whites who see that no this can't happen so to me i think the uh some of the responsibility is shifted to those whites with a conscience it's a white problem hopefully you know healing will come one day you know one of the natives of albina and it's in that new film uh portland civil rights project she says that racism's a mental illness and i think she's right so we're all afflicted. We're all taught to be that. And it's, you know, we have to get well. <laughs> that was Professor Karen Gibson again. I think people should invest in the children. And I think the people in the community, if you want to do something about what happened, is to actively invest in youth in that community. We should walk around the block. Or okay. Let's just walk on our street. How do you think? We have a lot of friends. Can we walk around the block? I am definitely not thinking of moving. Can we walk around the block? We also have excellent. Maybe later. Paths. I'll take you guys to a park later. Do you guys want to do that? Maybe. Yeah, but and please not. Have... Please not the harvest store where we went last time, scooting, and I pooped in my pants. Okay. The blocks. Kind of our second home. If we moved away from Northeast 8th Street, what would you miss the most? Uh, our house. Yeah, it's a pretty good house, huh? But we're not moving. Correct. Stay here forever. And ever. <laughs> Community is in no small part born of a commitment to stay in place. And for the first time, we see this as our very last move. We're still west of the Cascades, an hour and a half from the old block that shaped my last urban years. In my nomadic life in this country, I'd made home in a few inner city gentrifying neighborhoods whose stories always spoke of dispossession and showcased the poverty I once naively thought did not exist in this country. This is the same tale as in many other cities, through housing discrimination and redlining, most African Americans moved to one of the few sections of the city that was open to black residents. As Portland grew, the inner city with cheap housing and easy bike and bus routes downtown became more desirable, and that's where our block is. Well, when I was young, uh, everybody knew each other and got along for the most part, you know. 
and uh, things that were might be kind of hidden nowadays weren't really back then. Like if you had a guy at the corner that was alcoholic, everybody knew it. You know, <laughs> it, you know, he basically would take care of him if he stumbled out of his house or something. Somebody would help him back up on the porch. You know, and you know instead of hiding everything. You know, because it was such a close community. I can understand trying to keep things to yourself if you're ashamed or you think you know no one's people are gonna look down on you you know but there really wasn't a reason for that back then and everybody did community things ate together you know let me start by saying my grandmother lived across the street from me and my uncle and aunt lived one house over and the people next door to us were like our family and you know several houses you know on down the block and on the next blocks and on the other blocks over you know my grandmother would um make breakfast every morning and people would come and stop by before work, you know, so you'd get a chance to see everybody and say hi, you know, in the morning time before you run off to school. That was my neighbor Bobby again. Bobby tells us of the soul of place as a web of support and the responsibility we have for one another. As I witness the grief and contention associated with these changes that are sweeping the whole country, I wish for monuments with the full picture of dispossession that honors how all these neighborhoods are on indigenous lands, that remembers working class immigrants and the African-American plight. These monuments would be in all segregated neighborhoods in all cities, describing the colonizing that allowed for them to happen and the colonizing that continues to allow it. Yet the need to remember often competes with a pressure to forget, which is what gentrification does, offering no second thought as to what got us here in the first place. In lieu of monuments, being curious helps us to see not only who is around us, but what the story of our place is. My goal has been to understand racial economic inequality, how geography and place and space structure inequality. Here is Professor Karen Gibson once more. You know, I'm still waiting for people to tell the truth and to accept this. I'm not sure that we really want to go to the to the lengths that are necessary in order to to eliminate space as a mechanism for perpetuating inequality. So what are what is well, to be done? Government has been active in perpetuating inequality and government still has a role to correct for that inequality that it is structured in the built environment. So I point to government because we pay taxes to government. This is a full-time job. I mean, it's pitiful that you know, only one quarter of the people eligible for some kind of housing subsidy get it. Yet we subsidize home ownership. We need some major policy shifts at the federal level to support access to housing. I mean, we're in a crisis. You know, I, the crisis is larger in communities of color. We need policies on a federal scale that would acknowledge these problems. But, we, you know, this is, we're not willing to do this. parks were really nice. They'd have jam sessions. And there would just be crowds of people, you know, and these guys playing that, you know, lived in the neighborhood. they just come up there and plug up their equipment and start playing, you know, and hey, that'd be like every other week in the summertime. Yeah, it was really nice around here. And then, at that point, when I got into high school, then that's when the, the like, drugs and gang members and you know when the neighborhood started going down there was a lot of crime and just crime within the neighborhood crime they knew they could probably get away with but that really drove this neighborhood down a lot you know because it affected so many people that got hooked on on these drugs that they were selling at the time then all the gang members killing each other i mean it must have been every other day somebody you know getting killed young kids a lot of kids that would have been my age today, you know, that are dead or been in and out of prison since then and haven't adjusted correctly. To the kids that were involved in this, it was like a prestigious thing to do, to, you know, to give your life for nothing. I don't even know what they were dying for, really, but I guess they knew, and it was a sad thing to watch, you know. Part, part of that, too, was uh, those kids having kids really having no uh, springboard to teach those kids any different than what they knew, you know, so it kind of perpetuated that, that whole cycle. But 
It seemed like the whole thing was cleaned up at one time. They kind of came through and set up sting operations where they took out all the drug dealers at one time, you know, which left a lot of dilapidation in this neighborhood. But uh, I guess left it open for a free market, you know, for other people to buy. And apparently, I think that happened all across the nation where they kind of just cleaned it all up at once after all this damage was done. And it seemed like they could have stopped it in the first place instead of waiting until the destruction of the neighborhood. What policy to choose to get it right? It's anyone's guess. Um, I, the city already missed the boat. I mean, it was always the plan that they would redevelop the neighborhood and then shrug and say, well, it's too bad. That was Alan Silver again. I've always explored cities on foot since first living on my own in the giant city of Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'd walk for hours everywhere, tracing the city by the art on its walls and the character of its buildings. What I was feeling in Portland as I walked around is that there's a sensory deprivation caused by development as it homogenizes a place. The odd storefront replaced by perfect concrete squares of steel and glass. This got me thinking of Guy Debord in his 1967 book, The Society of the Spectacle. He writes, developed societies presents itself as an accumulation of spectacles and that all that was once directly lived becomes representation. I hadn't reread the board's work since my early 20s in Sao Paulo, and it feels as true now as it did then. He says that for the spectacle, as the perfect image of the ruling economic order, ends are nothing and development is all, although the only thing that the spectacle plans to develop is itself. The buildings um, and businesses just become more and more uniform to the point that you don't even get excited if there is a new restaurant or a new store because it's just, you know, in essence, the same as the rest, you know. Um, yeah, it's like they're developing the soul right out of the place. Yeah, you know, the, the conflict is that I appreciate, you know, at the same time, uh, in some ways, all these businesses are here for us, you know, our demographic. That was Mike. He's Emma and Danny's father. It's not that I believe that what is gone is better, but I do believe that what we don't protect fades away. I don't see development enhancing a diversity of people in business. And as the bulldozers bleed the soul of our place, commercial rent control and affordable housing don't develop themselves. fleeting shapes out of the corner of my eyes for years now of other presence or past city lives. I don't have that feeling much in the country anymore, not with the force I'd felt in the city, but maybe it's just that humans leave more disruptive stories behind, electromagnetic radiation emanating from experiences and objects that pile up in the landfill of our shared lives. Like a tape our neighbor Mike found in his backyard, at some point, someone who's known as Fat Sammy um, lived here, from what we've heard uh, from stories on the block, had some kind of um, operation going on, um, selling drugs, or at least they were partying a lot. And eventually the house was uh, raided um, by the ATF, FBI, um, as the story goes, and Sammy was arrested. When I, we moved in the first summer, I was digging my garden beds, I don't know, like a foot and a half Deep, deeper than seems right. I found a copy of Dr. Dre's The Chronic on cassette tape. It's pretty amazing that in 10 years that tape could get a foot and a half underground. Soul of a place lives in the layers we might ignore. It's remembering how this corner of the earth ended up being our home and to not be innocent about the past. I've been around here. Yeah, you know me. I've been around... I've been right here for a long time. 
Sorry, Michael, my son's trying to ask me a question. What's up? Of course. I'm just a small man trying to get by, trying to live my life long as When the Lord called me in, I'm ready to go. My bag's already packed. I ain't taking nothing with me but a good dream and, a, and tell the Lord I did the best I could. And I want to keep it real and wake up the public, you know, and speak my mind. Michael does yard work for a few neighbors. I met him as soon as we moved in. Me? I started from the bottom. I, I don't know much, but I can learn. I'm going to do what I'm doing. Yard work. You know, I, I may be small, but hey, I'm black home. I run my own business. <laughs> I struggle. I struggle. I've been here all my life. Yeah. I don't want to go nowhere. How's it changed? The rent is so high, $2,000 would just hurt. The, no, I can't afford that. You got to understand how life goes. It's up, it's down, it goes sideways, or it goes north, south, or west. But you got to understand, this ain't our world. After you clean it up. In finding the soul of the city, Elizabeth Vanderscaff suggests questions to change how you think about your neighborhood. For example, she suggests you pay attention to the shape of your neighborhood and what feels like the center. She asks you to notice how the neighborhood celebrates sacred time. What are the neighborhood festivals and gatherings? She asks you to find out where the spirits live, who lived here before you and before them. And she asks you to see what lives in the spaces in between. What's in the alleys? And where can you see birds? And where do the children go to get away from adults? You know, these homes around here are fairly good size. Which meant they all had families. And, you know, in this sense, I think it has. I think it just went back 40 years towards established neighborhood now with kids. You bring in a bunch of kids into a neighborhood, boy, that's putting an anchor in there and saying, we're here. It really is. And that's what, that's what's happened this time around. I didn't know that I'd ever see it, but then I didn't understand just how fast gentrification could work either. That was Bob from across the street. Like, my favorite thing about the block would be that um, there's a secret passageway for practically everywhere. Um, there's one to get into um, Oliver and Sebastian's fort. Um, when the door's locked, you just climb up the wall. There's one to get into out of my house without being detected. You get so far away from it. My name's Ivy. And how old are you? I am nine years old. <laughs> Life is good. Life is super, super good. I am certain that children everywhere know of the soul of their place. Yet the grown-ups, well, they have to choose to be aware. In terms of some notion of individuals being responsible to the places that they move into, I mean, to me, you're responsible for not destroying your neighborhood, but being respectful of other people that live there. You know, people not being friendly, neighbors not knowing neighbors, and that kind of thing. And neighbors, newcomers moving in and then just taking over and not being considerate of, of existing residents. That was Professor Karen Gibson again. Here's our next door neighbor, Bobby. I was really close with my mother and grandmother. You know, they were both really nice people. And there's a lot of people that ain't nice out here. <laughs> How do the interactions feel different to you, like, in your day-to-day? -day? Well, outside of our community block here, I don't know, it seems like people are more self-centered and uh, concerned about their own needs. And uh doesn't have to be a priority for everybody, but, you know, just general manners, please, thank you, you know. Turn on your blinker when you turn. You know, say thank you if I let you cutting any traffic, you know, just small things like that. If people don't do that, then they're not going to do the larger things. 
Portland didn't used to be like that. Uh, but I guess now it's not really Portland no more, you know. Probably more people here from other places than from Portland. As you talk to me about this, you know, I'm part of the wave. Mm -hmm. But where you come from is different. You know, my folks come from Mississippi. Same thing here, you know, sometimes uh, the only way you have to show love to a person is to cook them a big meal, you know. You show somebody you love them by giving them something they need, you know, by nourishing their soul, you know. Do you feel that what's lost is, it's more spirit-like, it's more soul-like? Mm-hmm. When you live in a big city, or even like San Francisco, let's say, because most of those are the folks like that are the ones that are coming in, you know, that come from the dog-eat-dog world, you know. That, that requires, you can't have a soul, <laughs> you know, and, and live like that, you know. My husband tells me of a business friend who moved abroad and mentioned that one day he finally understood what felt so different. And as he puts it, he didn't hear the stampede behind him any longer. That analogy stuck with me, the stampede of the rat race. Author Wendell Berry says he believes community, in the fullest sense, is a place in all its creatures. It's the smallest unit of health, and that to speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. My mother was once sitting on our porch swing during one of her visits from Brazil. And even though they had just met, Bobby walked up and joined her. They talked and laughed for quite some time, and it struck me just how uncommon of a U.S. experience that had been for me. Maybe Bobby has more of that Southern sensibility, like our own Southern thing. I called my mother in Brazil to explore these ideas, and after a great one-hour conversation, I find out that the recording app had not worked. My mother had tried hard to share in English, and it broke my heart to not have a record of that. She spoke of the soul of her place as part neighborly support and joked that the other part was the trash people threw in the streets, which she would pick up during her long walks around the neighborhood. I was interested in her perspective because she's also lived all over the place and insists that to adapt is to observe and respect the cultural codes of place. I can imagine her poised silence as she figured out how to behave in each new country she landed in. Yes, she answers me, people from the U.S. are more formal, but so what? As is usual in speaking to her, I feel a sense of inadequacy in my inquiry. Why can't I just be grateful for what is good and let it be? But maybe my generation has more space for nuances that don't seem very relevant to hers. They were dealing with such momentous changes, in her case including a military dictatorship that first propelled her abroad. Talking to her about Brazil also brought back the reasons why I'd always felt a sense of futility in my creative projects. After witnessing such abject poverty as one does growing up in Brazil, I'm telling you all of this because I was going to interview her again and had been making jokes that I needed to ask the FBI how to best record international calls. And then bam, there comes Brazil shoving its brutal contradictions in my face. A guy broke in my mother's house last night for a robbery and injured her when she screamed. This is not the first time. She's in the hospital right now, 10,659 kilometers away. Countless other Brazilians have their own such experiences, and there's many others that we've lost on crappy roads, including my father. So how's that for soul of a place? As I spoke to my mother that first day at the hospital, too many people were trying to visit. They came from her block, from the neighborhood association she's worked so long to sustain, from the woman's shelter she co-founded decades ago, and my family took turns sleeping in her room. I feel a great need to make sense of things right now, to stop and really look, as my mother often did, to find the difference and the common threads. I'm trying to forgive that man and the others before him who lend PTSD to the narrative of my mother's home. The violence will forever haunt me, and I would do anything to erase that experience for my mother. Yet I refuse to lose sight of the violence of misguided policy, corruption, and greed that breeds extreme inequality. My godfather just called to check in on me. He's a Catholic priest from the Theology of Liberation movement, which works for social justice. 
He's my mother's brother, one of eight siblings, and we call him Chupadri, which translates to Uncle Priest. Chupadri himself was once violently robbed, tied, and beaten, so I asked him how he came to peace with that trauma. He said that long ago, he'd made a commitment to not live in fear, that when he returned to Brazil during dictatorship, knowing that he was being watched, seeing friends get tortured and disappeared, that he had then decided to not let fear reside in him. For if he does, then they win, he says. Then I have my own policeman within. To be honest, I'm not quite sure I really get that one, but it sounds good. Activist Cesar Chavez says that we cannot seek achievement for ourselves and forget about progress and prosperity for our community. Our ambitions must be broad enough to include the aspirations and needs of others for their sakes and for our own. I believe he meant we build together with an awareness that it's all connected. Describe to me what's happening. Well, we're having a block party and uh, neighbors are starting to come out and kids are playing nicely, I think. Um, it's a really hot day. Ouch. They've been working a lot more. They've been a lot less. So I'm just kind of like, this is not the way the world is. What is that game? Jenga. I did. Sorry, I just. Oh yeah, I forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> In his book, A Man Without a Country, author Kurt Vonnegut says. I urge you to please notice when you are happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. I remember one of my neighbors stopped me uh, after I'd been living across the street from her for a while in Skidmore. And she said, you know, you've been living in that house for a while and you have never acknowledged me. Here's Alan Silver, the president of our neighborhood association. And she was right. You know, she's totally right. I kept just putting on my headphones and walking over to the grocery store and, you know, doing people out. And she was someone who has lived in the neighborhood for, you know, 60 years. Her son was shot to death in the neighborhood, and she chooses just to live there. Uh, I think newcomers who have more money than the folks who have been living in the neighborhood a long time should more than anything be aware of the fact that they're privileged enough that they can leave on their own terms for the most part. Um, and that their decision to drop into the neighborhood could be really short-term. And um, don't be blind to what's around you. Don't pretend that you, you've been granted this um, privilege to build a bunker and you get to stay in it. Make the best of that for your, you and your neighbors together. Of the two times the block really got together, one was during a gas leak. I'm still in his office on a, on a meeting, but I sent him a text, so I'm sure he's going to be trying to get out. Yeah, you should probably let him know. Send him another text, let him know you need to leave as soon as you can. The fireman just came to our door and was like, there's a gas leak. There was like an area ripped off. What did it feel like to just hang out with everybody? It was fun. <laughs> How come? Um, just nothing like that really happens on this block. It's not very exciting or anything, so it was just kind of cool. <laughs> And everyone was all like in their pajamas and stuff. Good morning, young man. How you doing, Bon? Oh, thank you. I didn't want to believe it. I just want to sit on the porch and wait for it to go uh, get over with. Yeah. It just says, after blowing up twice in Northwest Portland, I guess we better get out of here. I know. Is this, is this what it takes to get the to get the block together? It has to be really early in the morning. On a weekday morning, we inhabited a parallel universe together. Other obligations didn't matter. We were nice and solicitous. Strangers checked in on us. Two neighbors that lived across the street from one another finally introduced themselves. And I got a glimpse of what urban community could be if we were more intentional. Hey! 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 Hey
Well, that was nice, everyone. <laughs> Around here with the imminent big one, there's a real need to organize for self-reliance. If you don't know this, much of the Pacific Northwest lives with the threat of a giant natural disaster. But even with the earthquake threat, in the four years I lived there, we couldn't get a preparedness effort past the email stage. A family alone is not sustainable. It needs the village that surrounds it, the larger families we make, complex and fraught, and not binary like the communities made in ones and zeros on our phones. We seem to no longer remember what it is we have lost, or like Guy Debord warned us, images have become so ubiquitous that they've replaced what we called reality. He goes on to say that the ruling economic system is founded on isolation, and that technology reinforces the isolation of the lonely crowd. I do see many of us stripping back the layers, finding the guardian spirits and reflecting on the tapes in our backyards. As we look for the soul of our place, as we put down our phones and reach out to one another, perhaps this return to local relationships, that is how we'll shatter the spectacle. Kurt Vonnegut in A Man Without a Country says, a husband, a wife, and some kids is not a family. It's a terribly vulnerable survival unit. I felt sad as I walked away from the corner. There was soul in the coming together. My mother is now trying to move her life over here. There are a lot of hurdles, but thankfully we pursued her green card right before this wave of hardline immigration reform. My chupadre, on the other hand, the uncle priest, is sadly in the hospital and very sick. There is no peace for me with the distance. It's the fundamental rift of making home so far away. For many immigrants like myself, there is a dissonance in our souls. We live suspended in between cultures and far away from the places that first defined us. But that's okay. It's just another way of being. When we finally settled out west, I started writing a script that takes place here, but in my story, the Pacific Northwest is a sovereign nation focused on the social good, and the U.S. has imposed severe sanctions. It's the story of a young Latinx artist in present-day Los Angeles who migrates to this new land, and in a way, it parallels my own journey of immigration. As a new mother, and before all this research on independence referendums backfired on me, I finally pursued my citizenship. During an anticlimactic ceremony, President Obama delivered the promise of America in a bland video recording. Surrounded by people from all over the world, some who beat great odds to make it here, I was moved by our shared desire to find a better life. But I was let down by how little the ceremony underlined what it is to be of a place. As I see it, to be a citizen means we commit not to borders or other arbitrary concepts, but to a community of people, plants, and animals. We commit to the health of the water we drink and the soil that grows our food. We commit to the shared work of nurturing the children and the most vulnerable in our communities. We seek awareness of how personal choices affect everything, and we prop up the frail democracy that still stumbles in the background. To be a citizen is a useful state of being, and to be of use is a joyful thing. As author Freeman House asks, how can we begin to act like people of a place, rather than consumers and producers in a market system over which we have little control? To commit to a shared vision of prosperity, that to me is to inhabit, to be a resident, a national, a citizen of a place, that, to me, is the very definition of being home. There is an aggressive English ivy that separates our house from Will next door. The same ivy that tons of volunteers go peel off the suffocating forests around Portland. Back in the day, the affluent neighborhoods up the hills wanted aristocratic gardens, and now the English ivy is a plague. Community is something we build, not just passively inherit. 
and it'll be a mess of miscommunication, overgrown ivy and noise. There might be violence depending on where you live, lack of affordable housing, and all the socioeconomic issues that plague any region. But coming into the shelter of our village is the realization that we can't go at it alone. On our block, it was the children that brought us together. It was a good time on Northeast 8th Street, and you know, if that wasn't nice, I don't know what is. A plant that is of this place that also caught my eye is the lichen. Another neon color in the moodiness of my new home. And turns out it's not a plant, but a symbiosis between different organisms. This is a song that plays in the forest of my script. The woman has found her voice. It's a layered scene of lovers, lichen, and moss. I've been waiting to use this song for a very long time. I imagine my secession story, the kids' book manuscript, old poems and writings as they ripen in the oak barrels of my digital folders. Time and time again, I take apart their shells for the threads that connect it all. How else do we come to? Bravely picking the carcasses of our insights is my guess, and practicing those insights over and over. So go ahead, pick a place and stay. Follow the children and find the soul. To bring up Wendell Berry one last time, he asks, how can a country, a society, or a civilization live while its community dies? I leave you with a poem by Hafiz, a 14th century Persian mystic. A great need. Out of a great need, we're all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is a letting go. Listen, the terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. As the ground opens wide and it swallows us whole and the mountains they rumble as they render the sky. I see you is written, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Carolina, or Carolina. Jesse Stevens composed original tracks and textures, provided voiceover and interview post-production, as well as mastering. Closing track by Barnswallow with the song Cascadia. I had obtained permission to use this song for the film whose script I mentioned. Since the script is still a script, I'm just happy I get to use the song. Original music used with some of the children's segments was composed by Andy Poles and Jenny Hass, or Pony. Rise up by Low Leaf and set it off by Amanda Mari. Use with permission from Fresh Selects from Portland, Oregon. Okay, finally got it right. <laughs> Thank you. Music by Italics and Gunther. Used with permission from Oligopolis Records from Portland, Oregon. La musique électronique de Niger by Maman Sani et son Org. Used with permission from Sahel Sounds. Special thanks to the children and my Northeast Portland block, Alan Silver and Professor Karen Gibson. Thank you for listening. Ciao. E obrigada. Kebu at the Clinton is a monthly film series that benefits your community radio station. This month, we'll screen Don't Look Back on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater. Don't Look Back is a documentary film following Bob Dylan during a three-week concert tour of England in the spring of 1965. The film chronicles Dylan's concert appearances, hotel room conversations, and downtime, pulling back the curtain on Dylan on the cusp of his creative shift towards rock music. Again, that's Don't Look Back on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm 
on the right side of the home page under community events. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the 33rd annual Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast on Monday, January 21st from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. at the Red Line Hotel on the River at Jansen Beach. King County Counselor Larry Gossett will be the keynote speaker for the Scanner Foundation's 33rd annual Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast. Gossett, who was first elected to the King County Council in 1993, served as chair of the entire council in 2007 and 2013. Again, that's the 33rd annual Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast on Monday, January 21st from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. at the Red Line Hotel on the River at Jansen Beach, 909 North Hayden Island Drive in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Portland.